This morning, I, I did this last week too. Last week, I accidentally printed out the wrong sermon and discovered it the last second and ran to my office and reprinted. This week, I did it again, but I, because of last week, I double-checked. So I don't know how today's gonna go. We'll just see. It feels a little crazy, all right? But we're talking about something that's incredibly important. That's why I don't want to detract from this. This is incredibly important. Jesus has been teaching the disciples. We're in the sermon, not the Sermon on the Mount. We're on the sermon that happened at the night he was betrayed. So this, this, is a long, this is the longest teaching we have of Jesus at the Lord's Supper. And then afterwards, they went, they went out for a walk. They're walking through the Valley of Kidron. And Jesus is just teaching them. Why? Because he's about to die. These are the last words. These are important things for us to, if you're going to, someone's, someone's about to die, they generally don't talk about frivolous stuff, right? And this is what Jesus is doing. He's teaching them, and it's some incredibly deep teaching on how they're going to live, how they're going to function, what they're going to do, what's their purpose, how they're going to get the power and strength to do it, to go out into the world and change the world. And the crazy thing is, and I've talked about this before. This is one of the things historians ask all the time. How did it work? How did 12 people who are peasants from an obscure country, the lowest on the totem pole, and within a couple of generations, the world was radically changed? How could that happen, right? These people with no power, no money. I mean, it's an, it's, it's, it's a, for an ad person, this is a nightmare. How do you advertise this? We got nothing. Come join us. Some of our beliefs really, really are, are an affront to you. Come join us, right? That's, that's what's going on. And they changed the world. So Jesus is talking to them and he's teaching them. And he's been telling some things that are just incredible, that, that totally just wreck their lives. He's talking about dying. He's been making these, he's, and, and they can't figure it out. They can't understand. And he, we just got through a couple of sermons. He's, he's been talking about this, the Holy Spirit and the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. And what is he telling them? He says, the only way you're gonna make this is through the Holy Spirit. This is the only way this is gonna work. This is the only way the world is gonna get changed is through the Holy Spirit. And now with that as the context, he's talking about the, been talking about the Holy Spirit. He's gonna get into joy because the only way they're gonna get this joy is through the Holy Spirit working in their lives as they begin to understand how this works. And so we're looking at verses 16 to 24 in John chapter 16. You can follow along. I'm gonna read it. You can just listen as we go. Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more. And then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more. And after a little while you will see me and saying, because I am going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to him, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. Does it seem like we're repeating ourselves quite a bit here, right? This is so typically Jewish. This is such a typical Jewish, they repeat for emphasis. So they want us to see something here. I'm interjecting in the middle of this reading. They want us to see that this is totally dominating their thinking. They can't understand it. They're talking to each other about it. And then Jesus just addresses them and he says it again. Why? This is telling us, this is John's way of saying, this is incredibly important. Figure this out. Understand what's going on. Verse 20, very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. 
A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. So Jesus is teaching them, and this, the context here is the Holy Spirit working in their lives, but the key here is he's talking about there is this joy available, this joy that is possible in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of pain. And this is a hard thing sometimes for us to grasp. And I, I sometimes I, th- I think about when my oldest daughter um, was 16, she was diagnosed with lung cancer. And, uh, and I remember that time praying and looking to God and saying, what is going on? Because, I mean, you, don't, you, you, you think of all the, she might die. You think of all the possibilities that could happen. I remember my, in my devotions, one of those days, my devotion was in Psalm 30, and it said, sorrow lasts for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And I said, God, is this a promise? Because this is, this is a promise. It's not true. I woke up this morning, and I'm not joyful. I woke up this morning, and the sorrow is just like this weight on me. So what's going on? How can this be? I can wake up anxious and grumpy, not joyous. And Jesus is saying, there is a joy that is greater than sorrow. And the focus is shifting from the coming of the Holy Spirit and in that context to Jesus' departure. And he's bringing them a powerful message. The idea of joy, what is it? And they're struggling. They're struggling with this. How can there be joy and sorrow? They're faced with this problem because there is this relationship between joy and sorrow. And is there a joy that can endure through it? And that is so important for us today. So the first thing I want you to see here, does my sorrow mean I can't have joy? And this is kind of started when Jesus said, he went on to say, in a little while you will see me more. And then after a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. And they don't understand. And we talked, they go back and forth and, they, and it gets repeated. And Jesus sees that they can't figure it out. All right. And John, interestingly here, John goes into, into great detail of this talking back and forth and, and mentions it a number of times because he wants us to understand how they feel. He wants us, and we talk about this all the time. He wants us to put ourselves in their shoes. How can this be? You're the king. You're the Messiah. You're talking about dying. Kingdoms end. I mean, your kingdom ends when the king dies and you get a new king. And so they don't, how can this be? And John wants us to understand how, what a struggle this is. Because I mean, you think about it, even in our own lives, what if, what if we said, so what, what, if I, what if I was up here one day and I just said, look, I'm going away for a while and you won't see me. You won't even be able to text me. And then after a bit, I'll show back up. What would you think? You know, what is going on? Is Bob going on some kind of sabbatical? Is he, is he, Is he becoming a monk and he's going to take a vow of silence? 
And then you'd think that can't be because knowing Bob, man, a vow of silence wouldn't last 20 minutes. Is he leaving the church and we might see him at Costco sometimes? Is that what he's saying? Is he getting hair transplants and in a month or two he's going to show up with a full head of hair? That's a temptation. What does he mean? You see, you'd be like, what does he mean? Is he saying, is he saying he's going to, what? But it, how can this work with death? And so Jesus keeps teaching them. Now, just remember, we just repeated multiple times for emphasis about Jesus going away for a while and coming back. Now, Jesus says very truly, every time you see that, you remember, literally, this is truly, truly. That's literally what it's saying in the Greek. And it's a way of saying, listen to me. Look at me. Look at me. Listen to me. What I'm about to say is incredibly important. So listen to this. True, very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And this is talking about Christ's death on the cross. And they would weep and mourn. And weep and mourn is a common, especially in the Hebrew, it's a common phrase uh, for a funeral. And uh, that word, that word weep and mourn, there's two words there, but they have this idea of hopelessness. It's over. It's done. And he said, that's what you're going to think. You're going to think it's over. It's done. There's no hope. You may be in a situation right now where you feel like there's no hope. There's no hope. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. There's, there's, there's no silver lining in the cloud. There's nothing. And he's saying, no, there is. They're about to enter into something they can't get around. They can't finagle out of it. They can't pull some strings. They can't have some friends help them. They can't get around it. Jesus' death cannot be avoided. The sorrow that comes with it cannot be avoided. And this is one of the things I love about the word of God. It doesn't sugarcoat anything. It says you're going to have sorrow. This is real life. Sorrows are a part of this life on earth, and they can't be avoided at times. Death, illness, broken relationships, sorrow can't be avoided. And Jesus is talking about sorrow, and he puts it in the context of joy. Because we don't think those two things can go together. Our mo modern understanding of joy is kind of an idea of comfort, of being uh, relaxation. And in our mind, how can joy and sorrow go together? And the Bible is pushing us here, pushing us to reconsider our understanding of what joy is. This also is not just this passage. There's lots of passages that push us like that. It's not pleasure. It's not comfort. It's not being entertained in some way. It's not just an emotional high. It's a sense of well-being. It's a fullness. And our society is enamored with comfort and our society is allergic to sorrow. We want comfort and we want to go as beyond our abilities. At time. We want to go as far as we can to avoid sorrow. Now, I'm not asking for sorrow. I don't pray for sorrow. But I know I can't, it, I can't not have it. And when we become enamored with comfort and allergic to sorrow, what happens is it robs people of an understanding of what true joy is. 
I read an article not that long ago, and it was a, a, psychi- a psychologist, a very successful psychologist, big, big practice, um, and, they, and, and it was a woman, and she was saying, this is what I get a lot from people. I love my parents. I had a great childhood. I have a good job. So why do I feel lost, empty, confused, and anxious? My parents protected me from all this stuff. And I grew up, I got all this great stuff. And what happened? I still feel lost. I still have an emptiness. I'm still anxious. Why is that? And it's because people end up chasing the wrong things. And rather than being full, they end up empty. Joy is a fullness. And so there are times where we have to ask ourselves as followers of Christ, are there ways I am thinking and behaving that show that I am enamored with comfort and allergic to sorrow? Are there times in my life where I see this plainly? When I see this in my daily life, plainly. There's nothing wrong with comfort, right? And there's nothing, for, we don't want to pursue sorrow. But the point is, when we begin to deny one and make the other the most important thing, we set ourselves up for never experiencing the joy that God has for us. We need to think about this. We need to pray about this. We need to learn how to pursue joy, a joy that can undergird our greatest sorrows. So does my sorrow mean I can't have joy? Number two, can my sorrow turn into joy? And Jesus gives an illustration. He says, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that the child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your your joy. So Jesus uses this illustration. He wants them to see. It's a, a common illustration that everybody would know. I know this illustration very well. I had five kids. I know it's secondhand, right? Not firsthand. I know it's secondhand. I have watched my five children be born, and uh, just my five. I have no desire to watch anything again like that. Just, that's just me. And Bev and I have often reflected about our children. And I've mentioned this before, I know, but she, just, she keeps bringing up how heroic I was during the whole process, and I can't take credit for that. But I remember a moment our first child, our son, Derek, and he was born and they gave him to my wife and she was crying, holding this baby and she looked at me and smiled because there's a joy there in the midst of pain. There is a thankfulness so that joy and sorrow can, joy and pain can be there at the same time. Jesus is saying here, the pain and the sorrow in the world does not go away, but there's a joy. And verse 22 tells us, what, what's the key here? The key here is the resurrection. He says, I'm going away. I'm going to be crucified. It's going to seem hopeless. You're going to go through, you know, there's Friday, Saturday. You're going to go through Saturday. Imagine Saturday for the disciples. He's in the tomb. All their hopes and dreams have crashed. There's no hope. They see no glimmer of hope. They're frightened because oftentimes, I mean, lots of messiahs, there'd been quite a few messiahs that had popped up here and there in Israel during during that time period. 
And what happens? They kill, they kill this wannabe Messiah, and then many times they hunt down his followers. So that's why the disciples are hiding when Jesus goes and finds them. They're hiding because everything they ever hoped for has just fallen to pieces. They've, in many, many, uh, in many ways, they've given up family to follow Jesus. They've given up uh, um, opportunities, they've jobs to follow Jesus. And suddenly Jesus is gone. How do I go back to these people? And we see even Peter does. He goes back to fishing. And so there's this, this, this terrible sense of the end is here. There is no hope. And the resurrection changes everything. And so in verse 22, what we're seeing is the resurrection is the key to understanding joy. The resurrection is the key to understanding the difference between joy and sorrow. Because the biblical view of joy is not found in the absence of sorrow, nor is joy found in the presence of comfort. Rather, it is found in the presence of the resurrected Jesus. That's where it's at. That's where we find it. There is no other substitute for that. There is no other way of getting a joy that can endure in the midst of sorrow. It's impossible. It comes found in the presence of Jesus. This is the basis for our relationship with God. So when we enter into a relationship with God, we begin to see and take on his qualities, these communicable qualities of God. And, and oftentimes we fit God into sort of our preconceived ideas. You know, to me, one of the greatest illustrations of that is the Sistine Chapel, the picture of God reaching down to Adam, right? And God looks very old and stern and serious and somber as he reaches down to Adam. And yet scripture tells us there was great joy in creation, that God rejoiced, the angels rejoiced, that Jesus um, tells us was working right alongside God, rejoicing in it. And we don't often think of joy in relation to God the Father. He seems like the big guy with the flowing white beard. It's very serious. And yet scripture describes him many times, and this is a familiar passage, but it's true. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The word for rejoice there is a very physical word. It's, it's, it means you rejoice in a way that it shows in your body, right? Have you ever seen, you know, when our kids were little, sometimes they'd get really excited about something and there would just, they would just start dancing, these little weird happy dances, right? Uh, one time Cody was at the steps outside our house and he's dancing like that and he steps back and he, and I'm like, oh, look what mean old Mr. Gravity just did. He, he, but he was so happy, so happy with joy. And that's the word for God, right? God, when the Washington commanders score a touchdown, God celebrates, really believe he celebrates with me. Yes, these are so rare. We have to celebrate a lot. But see, this is, this is God. He takes great joy. He takes great delight in you. In you. My favorite movie is Hook. I just love that movie. And when Peter Pan learns to fly, what happens? He says, I remembered my happy thought. And he looks at his son, and he goes, it's you, Jack. 
it's you. You're my happy thought. I don't know, you know, I don't want to be too sacrilegious, but you know, you're God's happy thought. He's thrilled with you. He rejoices over you. That's our God. That, that the, the Hebrew word there, Seuss, is this, is this physical display of joy where you get so happy, it just, your body can't stop. And interestingly, Zephaniah chapter 3 is a chapter of sorrow. It's a chapter about sorrow. And God it just puts this interlude in there. But with you, I get so excited. Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and yet he is joy. I thought this was interesting in verse 22. It says... uh, Oops, there we go. Verse 22, and no one will take away your joy. Really, that verse is written for women. It says, no man will take away your joy. So keep that in mind, ladies. That's stupid. I don't even know why I said that. All right. Our joy transcends circumstances. Can you imagine not being subject to circumstances? Isn't that an awesome thought? It's possible in Jesus. God doesn't change. His love for me doesn't change, but people change and jobs change. The stock market changes, the weather changes, everything changes. So if I put my security in those things that are so easily able to change, if I put my identity in those things, if I put my joy in those things, I will lose. I will lose because joy comes from, true joy comes from God and he never changes so it can't be taken away. And that's the difference between joy and happiness. They're related, but what, the, but, but what the world calls happiness is basically just getting control of your life so you make all your circumstances favorable. That's happiness. In fact, I saw this, I, man, I think it was the New York Times. I forgot to note where I got it from, but they were talking about a study on happiness and they'd come up with the five top components of happiness. Top five list, here's another one. The five components of happiness, ready? There they are. Be in possession of the basics, food, shelter, good health, and safety. Number two, get enough sleep. Number three, have relationships that matter to you. Number four, take compassionate care of others and of yourself. Number five, have a work or an interest that engages you. Now, do you realize how ridiculous this is? Think about this. Think of the billions of people on this earth that can't get this five. It is not possible for them to have these five things for whatever reason. Many of them are in the United States. Maybe, maybe relationships have floundered and you feel hopeless and alone. Well, you've, oh, you, okay, you can't, no joy for you. Maybe you live in another country and, it's, and you struggle to get food and shelter. Oh, no joy for you. Maybe you don't like your job and so it's just kind of, you feel like I just do it because I got to get the money. No joy for you. That's what this is saying. That, that means billions and billions of people have no hope for joy in their life. Yet this is the definition that's popular in our country. But joy is, joy is possible, not based on circumstances, though. So let's talk about that. What's the source of joy? That is, how do we get it? We want to be practical. 
How do we get it? Now, I know this is the thing where we, because we're Western, this is what we do. Now, it's, oh, good, Bob, give me the top three ways to find joy in my life. I'll work real hard at all three, and I'll be joyful. That's not, that's not it. It doesn't work that way. Joy comes from God. It's a process in our life as we get to know him and follow him. We experience joy. It's a process. So there's no easy formula. But let me give you some ideas. First off, if we follow Jesus and we know him, it gives us a clear conscience. And not having a clear conscience is one of the main reasons people don't have joy. Following Jesus, you now have the ability to have a clear conscience. And that is a huge, huge step. Because when we've seen ourselves, we've seen ourselves at our worst. And we know, you know, we know us. And when we stop and realize that God has seen us at our worst and he loves us, we're accepted by him just the way we are. Then we have no fear of what others think. And this gives us a boldness and a freedom. An impure conscience leads to insecurity. It leads to anxiety. It causes us to hide and withdraw from others for fear of them finding out who we really are. And so we lose joy there. But if we follow him, we obey him, our conscience is clear and we find joy. Also, getting to know him better produces joy just because we're spending time with him. We're communing with him. We learn the word. I mean, it's really basic. We encourage you all the time, read your Bible. Why? Because that's where it's going to come from. Spend time praying, talking with him, letting him talk to you. As we do that, then what happens is we begin to understand what he has done for us. More and more, we understand it better. We begin to understand how bad off we were without him. And it leads to something that we've talked about a, a whole bunch of times, but I, I thought I was trying to think of a different way of expressing it. You know, suppose, suppose somebody said, I, I, you know, you invited them, they come to stay at your house. Maybe you go away for a few weeks or a month and they're house sitting for you, right? And they tell you when you get back, hey, listen, I just want you to know this bill came in the mail and it seemed like it was pretty urgent, so I paid it. You'd be like, oh, thank you. Can I pay it? No. No, don't pay me back. Just, just, wow, well, what was it? Well, it was an insufficient postage. It was like 87 cents. So I, I paid it. And you'd be like, okay, uh, all right. But what if he said it was, it was from the IRS? Something about we've been watching you for the last few years, and we've noticed something. And it was a huge bill with lots of penalties, Right? You'd be really thankful. You'd be like, oh, I knew this day would come. They caught up with me. I was cutting corners every year, claiming things I knew I shouldn't. I didn't have the surgery that I claimed three times in a row. I didn't have the, the whatever, you know? <laughs> Some of you were like, oh, wow, yeah. I have not been talking. I don't know about you. So don't think, don't think I have inside knowledge. <laughs> How did he know about that surgery? Um, they just put two and two together, and they tracked me down. Right? And you, you would be like, thank you so much. Thank you so much. You saved me from jail. Right? So there's two different kinds of thankfulnesses here, right? Right? 87 cents. Thanks. You know, $12,000. Thanks. 
The size of the debt influences the thankfulness. The size of the debt that was paid influences the thankfulness. As you learn more about Jesus, you read more from Scripture, you see more and more the size of the debt that was paid. And it makes you more thankful. Access to more joy. The bigger the debt, the greater the joy. It produces joy in our life. Let me just, yeah, I'll just, definition of joy. I always worry about putting up definitions because this is my definition. And it's easy for somebody to go, dude, that was not, come on, you really blew that. You didn't word that right. But this is just my attempt. Joy is the contentment, the fullness that results from the enjoyment of the unchanging privileges we have in God. Joy is not the opposite of sorrow and pain and suffering. Joy is the ability to exist on top of these things, to rise above them. We will still have pain and sorrow. And sometimes they will still overwhelm us. But deep down, there is something that can finally rise above it. And that is joy. It may take a while. But it's possible. The joy of the Lord the Bible says, is my strength. Paul talks about uh, joy, and he uses also an illustration of weight and scales. He talks about the slight momentary afflictions that are outweighed by the eternal weight of glory, right? And then he lists those slight momentary afflictions, and they're things like beatings and stonings and even death. And he says, the weight the weight of glory outweighs those. Paul is saying glory means that these afflictions are small and insignificant. He's not saying they don't hurt us. He's not saying it didn't hurt when he he was stoned. He's saying that when you make the comparison, you realize the difference. So the opposite of joy is not sorrow. The opposite of joy, and I think this is really key, the opposite of joy is hopelessness and despair. The opposite of joy is no hope. No hope. Because what happens when we have no hope? We, we look around when we have the hope that we have in the Lord. We can look around and we can say, wow, these things around, this is nice. There are nice things on this earth. But I've got something that's way better. And we can look around and say, these are some ter- terrible things. They're terrible things on this earth, but I got way, something that's way better. And on the cross, Jesus didn't say, you know, I'm not going to let this get to me. I'm going to grit my teeth. I'm going to not show any emotions, act like there's no pain. He doesn't. It was, there was pain. It was agony. Right? We see that. He's not asking us to be that way. He's telling us, look and see, there's something greater. You know, our problem sometimes is just that circumstances, we have good circumstances, we get a good feeling. And that's where circumstances can become an idol in our lives that we worship. Because when things go well, you know, maybe, maybe at work there's recognition, there's praise, and it feels good. It feels good to be recognized. It's nice to be praised. It's nice to get a raise. It does feel good. But here's the thing. If I start seeking those things, recognition, praise, you know, enriching myself, if those become what I'm seeking then what happens is my career can become an idol. 
and I become a slave. And in that praise and that recognition, my idol is saying, bless you, my child. You're the one in whom I'm well pleased. All is well and life is good. That's what an idol will say to you when things are going good. But after a while, maybe you're working just as hard and there's no raise. There's no pat on the back. Then your idol curses you. Your idol says, look at the people who are promoted ahead of you. You're worthless. And what happens? We begin to think that, well, maybe I am worthless. Maybe I will never amount to anything. And you feel bad and you'll feel confused. And sometimes you start saying, well, these, are, these people are all jerks. They don't recognize what I'm doing. I'll show them. I'm not going to work as hard. I'm going to cut corners. I'm going to talk bad about them behind their back and on and on and on. That's how it works. That's that cycle. And there's no joy in it. And it's kind of an exaggeration. I know things don't always happen that way, but things can take that turn. You become enslaved and your worth and your happiness, your joy is all tied up in these things. And it's up and down like a roller coaster. False joy. False joy is based on the blessings, not on the blesser. That's where false joy comes. That's where the counterfeit of joy is. When we, we suddenly look to the blessings, not the blesser. And it's difficult, I understand. But the key, I believe, is that we follow Jesus. And when we follow Jesus, what do we do? There are times in our lives where we get glimpses of this great joy. It can be difficult. And sometimes there's long periods between glimpses. I remember one time um, on, on an Arizona trip when we were first doing this. And, and um, so our teens were, and adults were all around with these, these kids coming around and talking to them and stuff. Just, it was just kind of a relaxed time. And this little boy sitting next to this uh, teenager, and I kind of walked behind him. They were sitting on a little bench, and I was walking behind him. And the little boy was just like, he just said, you you've come back again to see me. You came to see me again. And the teen looked at him and said, you bet, buddy. He said, I love you. If I can, I want to come back every year to see you. And I remember going, this is joy. In my heart, it was joy just praising God. And then hearing, you know, so then I'm walking away and I'm thinking, well, I want to hear more of this. So I walk back, you know, I walked back behind him hoping they didn't notice. And he's, the teenager, he's talking to this little boy about Jesus, you know, and he's talking to him about there's a God who loves him more than anyone else in the world. And I was just thinking, God, this is, I, you can take me home now. I'm happy. I'm joyful. This is better than circumstances being good. This is eternal, and you let me have a piece of it. We get those times. We will get those times where we get, and then sometimes there's periods where we don't sense it as much. God says it's still there. It's like learning scales for a musician. It can be drudgery at times, but then there is the joy of making music. When we follow Christ, we go to the cross, we see him and what he did for us, we learn and commune with him, and little by little, joy comes in our lives. 
we suddenly, suddenly we have a mission. We have a purpose in our lives. It's so interesting as you study the life of the disciples. They went all in on this after Jesus left them. He came back from his resurrection. He spent some time doing some more teaching, and then he left them, and they were like, let's go. Let's go. And they were all in on it at great cost to themselves. They lost everything, even their lives, and they didn't lose their joy. Why? Because the source of their joy stomped on death's throat. Death is our biggest and our final enemy, and the source of your joy defeated death. It defeated death. It is no more. Radically changed their lives. And Jesus says, I want to change yours. I want to give you this sense of purpose. I want you to live for me and live for others. Let the resurrection shape you so that you become one of those people who cry with those who cry, who weeps with those who weep, who bears one another's burdens, who rejoices with those who rejoice, who's, and here's the hard one, who's happy for another's blessing. Happy for another's blessing. Each morning, I want to encourage you, get up and in the morning think, what might happen today? What might I do today? What will God do today? And look for it. Learn to rest in the resurrection. Because in that deepest of sorrows, there was the greatest of joys that is available to us now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that your word is practical. It teaches us lessons on living life so that we can live for what we were made for, live the way we were made to live. Lord, help us to embrace that fully, to want that fully. In Jesus' name, amen.